Hello, I'm Daniel Simpson, the host of Ancient Futures. And if you're hearing this, you're listening to a preview of an archived podcast. For the full conversation, go to ancientfutures.substack.com. The link is in the show notes and become a paid subscriber. Or you can also sign up for a free seven day trial with no obligation. If you already subscribe, however, you have access to everything via the website um, where you can go to your account page to set up a feed to your favourite podcast app. Just follow the instructions at ancientfutures.substack.com forward slash account. Now, everything is free at the time of release, so it's also possible to subscribe without any charge to get the latest episodes direct to your inbox, along with other interviews and things that I write. All of that does take time to produce, though, so while it's a labour of love, subscriber donations do help make it sustainable. But if you're not in a position to pay, just send me a message and we'll work something out. For now, on with the preview. Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, where we talk about what's timeless while everything changes. I'm joined today by Eddie Stern, who teaches yoga at the Broom Street Ganesha Temple in New York. Um, Eddie has been practicing since the 1980s, um, and he's the author of several books, most recently One Simple Thing, a new look at the science of yoga and how it can transform your life. So our conversation explores his research that builds on this book, um, which means looking at the benefits of yoga, (laughs) but also diving deep into questions of meaning and purpose, um, as well as how to balance science and scholarly analysis with yogic tradition. We also touch on his transition away from a daily practice of Ashtanga yoga to explore new approaches, which uh, he'll be sharing next year in a new teacher training. You can find out more at eddiestern.com. Um, and if you'd like to support this podcast as a subscriber, uh, go to ancientfutures.substack.com. But for now, without further delay, here's a fascinating chat with Eddie Stern. Eddie, welcome. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for joining me. Um, yeah, it's a real, real pleasure to have the chance to spend some time and chat. We were both involved in a panel uh, this weekend, although the panel was kind of strung out over several sessions, so we weren't actually in the same space at the same time, but uh, I enjoyed tuning in and and hearing you on replay the other day, chatting about various yoga-related themes. And uh, what I'm really keen to talk to you about today is uh, what you're in the midst of at the moment, I think, by the sounds of it, uh, research and uh, academic study um, which was what I was talking about at the weekend um, embodied philosophy you know the question of how you know intellectual endeavors relate to you know the practicalities of yoga and it sounds like what you're looking at is very well harmonized between those worldviews talking scientifically about you know how yoga helps people and uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what you're researching and and what you found Absolutely. Um, well, thanks, first of all, for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to meet you. And of course, um, I've seen your book and it's an awesome piece of work and no small accomplishment. So well done. And um, the field of yoga research is a vastly um, expanding field. It has been present since around the mid to late 1920s, um, when Swami Kovalyananda began doing his initial research with Western apparatus 
on yogis to see what were the effective mechanisms of yoga. And his feeling was that for those who believe in yoga, no proof is necessary. And for those who might not believe in yoga, they might believe in the language of science to show how yoga worked, where it worked and what it was effective for. And he and many others were of the opinion that yoga could be helpful in healthcare and education and in different sectors of society to bring about greater levels of health or healing, mental focus, a sense of purpose in life and all of the things that yoga can give to us. I've been involved with yoga research since 2010 when a doctor named Marshall Hagens walked into our temple and said he'd been given my name um, by one of my students and that I might perhaps be a good person to write a protocol for a study he was doing on pre-hypertensive conditions in African-Americans in Brooklyn. And so I joined with him to try to create a protocol uh, that would be effective. So that was really my entryway into scientific research. Mm. Before that, I had been practicing yoga since 1986, 1987, only completely fully as a spiritual endeavor. In the 1980s, you didn't do yoga because it was good for your health. You did yoga because you were on a spiritual quest. And that was all there was to it. You know, yes, you might want to have better health, but your better health was to support this um, quest for spiritual understanding and for meaning and purpose. And that's always what yoga has been about for me. Um, even though I've been increasingly interested in scientific research and in physiological mechanisms, etc., the idea that yoga is a spiritual quest has always been the foundation of my interest in it and my life. So two years ago, I decided that um, I was ready to go to college. I never went to college. I went to India basically fairly straight out of high school. And um, I thought, all right, maybe I'll, um, maybe I'll try to get a degree. And um, I didn't want to do a bachelor's because that takes four years. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I'll see if I can try to get accepted into a master's program somewhere. And um, mm. the only program I could get into was the Vivekananda Yoga University, which is a new university that's just opened up in California. And they are a sister school of Svyasa in Bangalore, which is a very old research institution in India and a very esteemed mm -hmm. one. And I'm in my final few weeks of my last, uh, my second year, we would say, of, of the Masters of Science program, currently working on my dissertation. And what I've decided to look at is, is it possible to measure um, spirituality in yoga? And is it possible to measure what mechanisms might be contributing to that? And in specific, I'm looking at levels of perceived stress and anxiety. And if those levels in yoga and non-yoga groups have a bearing on a sense of purpose and meaning in life, and in how much we are continuing to search for purpose and meaning in life. And one of the reasons that I settled in on meaning of life and purpose of life is because one of the essential characteristics of yoga is this thing called dharma, which you are very familiar with, 
one of the many translations of dharma is purpose or purposefulness that we each have in our lives. And so I'm making um, or I'm equating the idea of a, a presence of meaning as a presence of understanding or feeling one's own dharma or swadharma, one's own dharma. And um, that's basically what I'm looking at. So I'm in the data analysis portion. I'm looking at the statistical analysis of all the research I've collected. And um, then, and I've been writing it up for the past month or so. It's due next week. And uh, we'll see, um, we'll see what I come up with or what the data shows rather. Oh, I was about to say, any, any sneak previews from your glances at the data before you write it up or is it, is it still being weighed? I would like to say that the data is promising for yoga. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's <that's, that's> encouraging. <laughs> but, uh, but we'll see. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing to do. Um, I've wanted to, you know, I have um, a clear understanding of why I do all these things and that mm. um, there are certain worlds that I'd like to participate in. And one of the worlds I like to participate in is this larger world of the yoga dialogue. And there are many facets of the yoga dialogue. One facet of the yoga dialogue is history. Another facet of the yoga dialogue is philosophy. Another facet of the yoga dialogue is science. And all of these things are equally interesting to me and they all kind of go together in certain ways as well. So I wanna be educated um, and I wanna be educated in such a way that I can participate in these discussions and in these dialogues, because it's the world that I want to inhabit. Um, so part of getting a master's degree is so that I can participate in higher order discussions about these topics. Thank you. And uh, I'm really intrigued by the you know, attempt to define spirituality, because that would be, you know, where I would probably stumble over my feet and fall flat on my face. And uh, it's interesting, I think, to, to anchor it in this question of Dharma. Um, although I'm immediately wondering um, whether it needs to be a spiritual project to find meaning and purpose in life, and uh, whether that could be something that people might have you know, found for themselves in the, in the non-yoga camp, for example, just by having a kind of existential sense of, of purpose that's uh, self-directed rather than, uh, you know, perhaps coming from somewhere deeper within. I don't think that you need to call it a spiritual undertaking. Mm. Um, and um, I think that having a sense of meaning or a sense of purpose in one's life is a fundamental um, necessity for all people. And I think that when people have a sense of meaning and purpose, their lives are a little bit more fulfilled. Um, there's a lot of research which has been done on this and often the words spirituality are used mm -hmm. in regards to it, but not always. One of the things which has been shown also is that higher levels of sense of meaning and purpose indicate higher levels of psychological well-being and higher levels of physical health as well. So from a yoga point of view, that's very interesting because we're doing things like asanas and pranayama, as well as practicing, practicing behavioral things like nonviolence and truthfulness. So these all link up with physiological well-being, psychological well-being, emotional well-being. 
And all of these things loosely get lumped into this category of spirituality. And it's interesting because the definitions that you find of spirituality in a lot of the research on these topics where people are trying to measure them, they will say that spirituality has a lot of um, similarities to a feeling of religiousness, but it could be devoid of any theistic associations. Mm. But there's a transcendent principle, which is quite often found. And what does that mean? Transcendent principle means that you might be thinking beyond yourself, mm. that there is we live in a world which is interconnected. We live in a world which is interrelated. And everything that happens in our lives isn't centered only upon us. And so with that kind of expanded awareness or expanded consciousness, this is being defined as a type of a transcendent principle, transcendent of only an individual self. And this is a, a hallmark of yoga, that you begin to think beyond yourself. It spontaneously comes just from doing some stuff with your body and slowing down your breathing and thinking about a couple of contemplative things, all of a sudden things begin to expand and become interconnected. This is found, uh, has been tested on every individual practically who's done yoga over the past several thousand years. There's an expanded sense of self beyond my own narrative. And that's compelling and interesting. So that, those are some of the things they look at and some of the things that get lumped under this word spiritual. I guess the question, though, is what happens as a result of that engagement beyond the boundaries of the self and, uh, and where one takes that? Because I'm sure we can all think of examples of people who were you know, very skilled at being able to access these sorts of states, but very unskillful in their worldly behaviors. Yeah, there are lots of examples of that. Absolutely. Um, and so I think that this shows that there has to be a link between actuality and realization. So you might have a realization, but then you have to actualize it in your life and in your behavior. And that can be very challenging if you have any unresolved or undealt with um, traumas or proclivities or genetic inheritances or some scars or whatever it might be, um, you know, if you haven't dealt with those things, then they're going to display themselves often in um, hurtful and unpleasant ways. So I think that um, in regards just to the question that you asked, what does it mean? What's the use of, of that experience? Well, it should be happiness and contentment. That's what it should be. If you have a deep sense of meaning and purpose and you're living in alignment in that, with that meaning, with that purpose, then it should lead to santosha, this deep levels of contentment and, um, and joy, the unsurpassed joy that Patanjali speaks of, that then you share with those around you. Um, but if, if you have an inkling of your purpose, but you don't take active steps to live in alignment with it, then uh, you're still living in a denial-based existence to a certain degree. I don't know if that is agreeable to you or isn't. Makes a, makes a lot of sense, although I, you know, I can't help uh, but come back to the fact that we're all human and therefore we do have a lot of those conditions that you alluded to of you know unresolved traumas uh, tendencies some scars and <laughs> afflictions uh, 
the capacity to to misbehave and to need to make amends and to course correct and to learn and in my case learn the same lesson again and again and again and uh, I don't think I'm alone there um and yet at the same time yeah, something happens it's not necessarily a linear path and uh, I was struck uh, I noticed you'd published something recently about uh, yoga and pain and uh, observing their ways that the various techniques of yoga practice but also the broader perspective of you know how to how to look at life and one's place in it um you know, have a, a rich range of potential sort of impacts on your experience but it's not necessarily linear it doesn't affect everybody the same way um, and there can be ups and downs <laughs> and so there's this uh you know, constant process really of having to steady the ship and you know being able to to, to keep moving and not to get you know, caught up in the, <laughs> the shallow silt and, and get stuck which is you know something that can happen quite easily as we get buffeted around on the waves of life and uh there's yeah. one that one I want to I, please please the question hold on to your question but I just want to say mm. that um that when you have a sense of meaning and purpose also your meaning and purpose is allowed to change over time and even when you settle on one meaning for now it's not game over it's just now I have a guidepost now I have something to look to and I'm gonna mess up and I'm gonna stray and I'm gonna struggle um, but at least I have this thing that I felt inside me that I can continue to check in with rather than not have anything inside me to check in with and feel lost all the time. So this is a way of finding, this is what it means to be found. If you find some purpose, you found something in yourself. Um, and that's what finding yourself is. But yourself might change. And so you need to also be willing to allow things to change and to keep looking. So even though you found some meaning, it doesn't mean that it's game over. It means that it's game starting. And you know, now I can move forward with this and allow it to change as it needs to. Maybe it won't change, maybe it will change. Um, but definitely there will be struggles along the way. And this is why I think Patanjali says in um, discussion of asana that when you become established in asanas, then you, it's not that you transcend the pairs of opposites, hot and cold, pain and pleasure, um, success and failure, praise and blame. Those will still exist for you, but they won't throw you off as much as they were a person who's not established in stability. Um, so they don't disappear, but you getting lost in them, uh, you become more resilient with the changes as they come towards you. So I think that's definitely one of the things that we can aspire to with these types of practices, uh, to become more resilient to the changes of life because we have some type of an internal anchor. Um, so anyway, I'm sorry, carry on with your question. No, it's okay, it's okay. I might even park my question and come on to another one quickly, just as a stepping stone, because um, one of the things that changes, I think, um, is, our engagement with these teachings, which changes the teachings. Um, yeah, there is this sort of interrelationship between the observer and the object of observation and the process of observation. Um, and it's, it's transformative. And yoga has come to the West. It's serving new people in new contexts. And what we're asking for from it might be very closely related to what people have been engaging with in the past, but it, it takes on a slightly new meaning in a new cultural context. For example, the, the word you referred to earlier, Svadharma, um, you know, in the context of the Bhagavad Gita, for example, is uh, it's presented as something 
that one is uh, effectively born into, you know, depending on your varna, uh, you have a different dharma. And um, that's the the basis by which uh, people have become priests and handed things down through their family lineages. Um, The reason why Arjuna is tasked with fighting. Um, But we get to choose a little bit more, it seems, in in this Western world of asking ourselves, you know, what our purpose is. Um, And I was wondering if if, if you think there is a difference there or or whether actually something similar is going on, that there isn't necessarily as much choice as we might like to imagine. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. Um, I'm really not sure. I think that there are definitely going to be cultural differences between the way yoga is understood and perceived in Hinduism and the way that it's understood in England and the way that it's understood in America mm-hmm. and the way that it's understood generation to generation as well. So a lot of these terms are going to be what I feel could be umbrella terms and Dharma has been used in different ways at different times and in different contexts. Mm. But there are some similarities to the way the word is used and the same is true with yoga. So asana is an umbrella term for the way that postures can be done and or or just the idea of postures in general. And Patanjali says there's a generalized way of doing them. They should be stira and sukha. Your effort should be prayatna shaitalia. It should be a relaxed effort. And you should be cognitively blending your mind in the infinite, or if you're theistically inclined into ananta, vishnu, serpent, so, serpent bed, that is. So, um, but if you look at the idea of stira sukha and prayatna shaitalia and ananta samapati, this is how you do any asana. So it's an overarching category. Pranayamas are overarching categories. It's an umbrella term. So is dharana, dhyana, and samadhi, many different ways of doing them. Dharma as well is an umbrella term that is going to encompass a whole load of conduct depending on where you're born, when you're born, and what you were born into. And so then the specifics that arise out of that, I think are going to be determined culturally and also depending on the time that you're born into. But those terms are still applicable for us. We can use them and think about them. Thanks for tuning in to this preview. Uh, To continue listening and to get access to all archived episodes along with other perks, visit ancientfutures.substack.com.